could maths be the marmite of the education world? Students seem to either love it or loathe it. They either get it or they struggle. And quite often you'll hear students who don't enjoy maths saying things like, I don't even know why I'm bothering, or it's not like I'm ever going to need to know what a quadratic formula is after my GCSEs. As parents, many of us can sympathise with that. There comes a point in secondary school where a lot of us struggle to help out with homework. Because we wouldn't have tackled things like simultaneous equations since our own school days. But maths is a subject like any other, so surely it can't be down to some quirk in our genetic makeup that means that some students uh, will succeed while others flounder. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering the kinds of topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at maths, why it seems to polarise students, and what can be done to help them. It's a real pleasure to be joined today by Danny Quinn. Danny is the network lead for secondary maths at ARC Schools, a network of 38 schools across the UK. Previously, Danny was head of maths at Michaela for five years, where the school made the best progress in maths GCSE results across the country. As an educator, she tells me she has an unfettered enthusiasm for teaching maths to teenagers. Danny also blogs about the techniques and approaches that teachers could use to teaching maths in the classroom. Danny, thank you for joining me. In the course of my conversations with students, it's become really clear that students seem to fall into either get it or don't get it camps when it comes to maths. Talking to Robin this week especially brought that to the forefront. Here's an ambitious and highly capable student who's aiming for an eight in her English, talking herself down when it comes to maths. I'd just be happy to pass, she told me. As we explored why she felt that way, she talked about there being a point in her schooling when she had a maths teacher whose love of maths was infectious and that the maths she learnt at that point was still the maths that she enjoys most. But now, maths scares and confuses her. And frankly, she doesn't see what the benefit will be. Not as good as maths, when it starts becoming like um, lines and graphs and that's when I get more confused and I go, what's the point of this? <laughs> maths is just, after, after this exam, it's never going to matter ever again. And so I just really need to pass. Danny. Are some people wired in such a way that they will always find maths difficult? I think it is definitely true that people have greater or lesser aptitudes for maths. And I think one of the things that's made maths teaching very enjoyable and interesting for me is I am not someone who finds maths extremely easy. I mean, I don't want to act as if I'm someone who struggles as much as maybe a student who's really struggled all their life. But certainly for me, my A-level of maths was hands down the hardest one for me. And that's part of why I really enjoy teaching it is I have a real empathy with the difficulties. Certainly my friends at university did math degrees. Their experience of maths when I talk about it with them is very different to what I'm mentally experiencing. I do experience a sort of stress and crisis of confidence when discussing maths with them. I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I don't worry that 
or incompetent, but it's very easy to feel that way with maths and to feel incompetent with maths in a way that we don't feel with our other subjects. Possibly the starkness of it, possibly the way that maths is viewed as a society is very pure and intelligent, or it's very like pure, I'm not saying this is true, but a, our view of it as a society is it's a very pure statement of intelligence and raw intelligence, which obviously when we sit back and think about it rationally, it's not true, but it's very easy, especially when you're a child or even if it's an inherited view as an adult, to think how I do at maths is the real test of if I'm a smart person or not. So I think that, yes, of course, there are going to be differences in aptitude, but almost the cultural way that we engage with maths as individuals and through our families and peers and schools and the emotional experience we're having with maths seems to be the bigger determinant of how much progress we're able to make. So you, you talk about Robin and for her, that feeling of being in a class where she was emotionally safe and a teacher I mean, talking about the teacher's infectious enthusiasm, what it also would have been is infectious enthusiasm for Robin's success. And that would have been what would have carried Robin from a place of feeling failure to feeling potential and hope for herself. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm making an assumption on Robin's part, but where I've seen that for students who they don't have an immediate aptitude in the sense of it takes more work for them to make the same progress, being buoyed along by the beliefs of their peers and the key adults in that moment is what keeps you going when maybe it doesn't happen as fast for you so that you feel, I know I can get there because everyone else believes I can get there. So I know I can as well. So I say of the children I've taught, it seems to be that probably almost every child I've ever met with maybe an exception of about one to 2% could pass GCSE maths given the time and the support. I've taught a few children where probably it meant that they would have had to have studied secondary maths for maybe 10 years, five years wasn't going to cut it. So they probably could have made it given the time, maybe not the right use of their time, but we're talking about really end of the bell curve in the case of those children. Overwhelmingly, like 98% of the population, if they're taught well and applied themselves and they're in a, an emotionally supportive environment, should be able to pass maths without it being extremely stressful. So then those variables about how they feel about themselves and the messaging that's getting them there would be my impression from my experience. And do you think that differs for other subjects then? So the one, two percent that might have needed twice the amount of time in maths, do you remember if it was broadly similar for their other subjects or did they have loads of creativity and English came easily but maths was a problem? So I suppose there'd be two camps there's probably in each population of kids that I've taught where you take about 100 kids there'll be one who's actually pretty good at humanities and English and maths feels like a real brain freeze for them and getting them to pass maths is going to be a, you know the, one of their biggest academic achievements and then you'll have a few who just globally their learning is delayed and obviously that's because of real misfortune in terms of their brain development or how they've grown or just different learning difficulties they have so there'll be sort of two camps and of course children are still extremely valuable people capable of showing love and you know they're just inherently valuable as humans I don't want to have to be like oh he's so good at dance so that makes him valuable obviously these children are inherently valuable anyway they just happen to struggle you do get both types where maths is a specific block for them or just global learning delays that hold them back. Is there something in that growth mindset where you can more easily apply it to something like English and the humanities because maths is so you know you, you get it right or you get it wrong. And so it's quite easy then, I would imagine, to feel as a child, actually, I'm just no good at this because look at all of the crosses on my page. How can I develop from that? Yeah, I think maths does, as a subject, though it's interesting, this doesn't happen in the same way in science, which makes me think that there's going to be a cultural and emotional thing that you could look at a question in English and kind of just make up something, you know, thinking about some of the very most like intellectually disadvantaged kids I've taught who had like a lot of global delay and I was a scribe for one of them for a lot of his exams and for English he was filling pages I mean it wasn't brilliant but he was confidently filling pages he had loads to say even if it wasn't the most coherent but when it came to for example 
his science or his maths, there's much more of a like, I don't even know how to begin because we've all had that experience. If you look at a maths question, you think, well, I can't even start. So then people say, oh, just put more effort, just work harder. It's like, I can't work harder. I have nothing to work with. Whereas it's more likely to be with history or geography or English that it might turn out you're writing total rubbish, but you feel like you can get going or say something. We've all looked at examples of things people have written where you're like, wow, you didn't know what was going on. But of course, at the time of writing, you don't know that. So you feel like you can put a lot of effort. Whereas maths effort alone doesn't get you started and doesn't keep you going. It's extremely binary at every single stage of can you identify what to do and do you know how to do it? So the feeling of if I just try, I'll get there, can get you through English or at least in the moment, but won't get you through maths in the same way. Hmm. And do you think there's a sort of a big impact of motivation and I guess similarly, actually, this would apply to a history or a science. But if we already take as read that this very determined nature of being right or being wrong in maths. So I'm wondering then if the fact that it's hard to reconcile as a parent the need for factorising or simultaneous equations in future, actually, how can we help children to sort of find that motivation if they really struggle to understand why this thing I'm finding so tricky, I need to now carry on working on? Definitely. So I think with that aspect of motivation, when you get to that stage of the conversation of the child saying, but why do I have to learn this? What they're really saying is, why do I have to experience so much pain and frustration and shame? I mean, obviously, you hope that they're not feeling actual shame, but it can, it definitely can feel that way. You'll see it when a child struggles to read. I don't mean they struggle in English language or English literature. A child who can't read will also really, will tend to via their behavior, really reject their lessons as well. And, you know, maybe they'd rather push a table over than risk being asked to read in front of the class. There's an equivalent thing that happens with math. So if you're at the stage where your child's saying, but why do I even have to learn math? They're questioning, they've learned to fact that they have to learn to factorize. Probably the first thing that's special that a parent can offer more than a teacher, but I think teachers can still do this, is to recognize it as almost like a cry for identity and support and to be validated to be told you're still valuable you're still intelligent you're still capable so falling straight into the trap of answering that question of why do I have to learn this why is this on the syllabus actually wouldn't meet the need that they're trying to express in that moment because what they're saying is I need to know that you still value me even though I think that this is really hard and I fear failure in this topic or fear fear failure in this subject um which is obviously really important for parents to, you know, see if any parent who's listening to this is one who wants to really support their child in that way. So just first, my first reaction is don't let yourself get sucked into talking about mortgage statements in that moment, because that's not going to answer what your child's talking about. But then once you've got through the conversation of, or that it could be multiple conversations and small things you trip over time of reassuring them that they're still valid and valued and intelligent in your eyes because of the way they look at the world or think or be logical. And you can talk about all the ways in which they're a mathematical and mathematically valuable person that they organize their ideas well or whatever. In terms of why the maths itself matters to help them see it as something bigger than themselves is depending on your child, it might help to look at really practical applications of maths, whether it's mortgage statements or interest rates or trying to look at stuff around you know news stories around coronavirus and how stuff's being measured that stuff generally from my experience of using it with kids is actually quite boring mortgage statements and calculator is just so boring we thought for a while okay we'll do lots of like real world stuff that you have to do as adults and show them how to like calculate your tax at my last school we spent a little while trying to show the children how to calculate their income tax at different brackets and obviously you know but having to teach it really made me support flat tax. But that aside, trying to teach just to save the pain, but setting that aside, trying to teach children how to actually calculate their income tax based on the progressive model is so dry. So actually, despite it being the thing that people will say, why don't they just teach us how to do the maths that we're actually going to need? That maths is deeply uninspiring and highly technical and machine-like and actually antithetical to what makes maths 
exciting and beautiful. And I think the big epiphany for me as a teacher was realising that one of the reasons we want to learn maths and why it's so beautiful and exciting, and this is the thing to communicate to your child, is because they're a link in a chain, that every human society and almost all human progress has relied on, like, 4,000 years ago, Chinese children in, like, an ancient dynasty were sat in classrooms learning the Pythagorean theorem. We, we know we, we have obviously got developed separately in ancient Greece and separately in ancient Egypt. But 4,000 years ago, we've got, we've got evidence that Pythagoras' theorem or, you know, the ideas behind it were being used. So they were, like, children 4,000 years ago who were learning the exact same ideas and concepts and things. So that gives them this incredible link to both the past and to humanity across space and across time, and they're linked to the futures that they are going to be a link in that chain. So I think helping your child see, yes, you might use Pythagoras, but you're part of this chain of like intellectual humanity that takes us from being like uneducated, uncivilized, whatever in the past. What makes us civilized is each of us is going to pass that chain on. Just like, yes, you might never write another essay in your life but you have that skill that you'll pass to your child you one day you will do the thing that I am doing like even as a parent you can say yes fine I don't use trigonometry in my normal life I mean some of us I'm lucky my dad does do it because he's in the science background but my mom didn't use it but the fact that my mom could help me with trigonometry was her being a link in the chain and her saying it is worth knowing trigonometry because today I can help you with it or even if it's whatever it is but just helping your child see that actually they're just part of a huge part of human heritage and even if they learn this just they can pass on to the next generation or just give the child the confidence in their own future maybe not a child you can say you know your nieces your nephews because you don't want to get into that conversation with them but helping them see it as something so much bigger than themselves and that's something that's part of like you are so valuable because you're part of this chain of civilization uh, depending on how you want to talk as a parent another thing for them is right now you might hate maths i think i don't want to do a math thing but having this like safety level of maths means every door stays open to you in the future you might think right now i just want to be an artist in the future that's awesome that you want to be an artist i hate for you to turn 30 and think actually I want to move to a different career and have that door closed and helping them see that the maths that they learn at school is not the maths that's the most applicable to the world but in terms of like jobs but the maths is the hardest to learn on your own it's not that hard it's very boring but it's not that hard to learn to balance an account or to calculate income tax or to work out what you have to repay on your mortgage it's just desperately boring but learning the idea of balancing equation or the idea of the ratios between sides and a triangle that stuff's so hard to learn on your own without a supportive adult asking you questions checking you as you go so the maths we're learning at school is the maths that's most impossible to do alone the rest of maths you'll need in the rest of your adult life you probably can learn it on your own but those foundations are going to be essential for getting them there in that place. So just helping them see that what they're learning is what almost gives them the freedom in the rest of their life. So focusing it more on sort of freedom and heritage and being valuable as a person is more likely to get that motivation for them, in my experience. Because I think what we tend to see is that making them feel valued as a, as a sort of a parenting trick is to not make them feel undervalued. And from what we've heard in previous episodes, a mistake of saying things like, don't worry about it too much, I didn't get it and it hasn't done me any harm. So that sounds like it would be exactly the wrong kind of thing to say, well-intentioned, but not getting that drive or giving them the broader context that they need. Definitely. So I think actually that I'm really glad you mentioned that because a really interesting study that Harry Fletcher Wood shared a while ago and summarised on his blog was around students and motivation and showing them what they need to do to achieve a particular goal. So let's say it was to learn a certain amount of information or be able to do some academic thing and included other types of achievements beyond academic ones. And students would be shown the amount of work and they'd practice doing the kind of work it would take to get them to like, you know, reach this particular level of achievement and students would have a little go at the work and then get feedback on it and then be told okay you're gonna have to do this much more work to get to it 
and students' responses overwhelmingly was rather than commit to the extra work that it would take was to revise downwards what they wanted to achieve. So obviously everyone starts when they're young saying, I want to get all A stars or grade nines in my GCSEs and you know I want to go to Oxbridge. I want to, you know, I want to be whatever. You know, people when they're young will have extremely high and exciting ambitions for themselves. And I think we sometimes have to make the mistake of saying children aren't ambitious and aspirational. And particularly people will assume this about kids from more economically deprived backgrounds. Actually everyone generally when they're young is extremely aspirational and excited. It's only as we experience reality, we start revising down what we hope for ourselves. And you'll, you'll hear kids say like what Robin said, of, oh, I'll be happy with a four. And there's almost a fear of even saying, I would like a grade five, I would like a grade six, because we just, we're having to protect our kind of our sense of self and our sense of ego by just revising downwards. So one of the things there that's really important is not to model revising downwards as a good coping strategy. I mean, it's probably, it's probably a sensible coping strategy for lots of things in life, but it's also how we can really limit ourselves in life and accepting, I want something and I mightn't get it, but I'll never get there unless I want it. So, and it's so important to model that to your child, even to say, oh, I wish I could go back and do my maths, or, you know, I love getting to see it from you. Even if you say, yeah, I really struggled at school. I wish I'd worked harder. I wish I'd listened to my teacher. I love that I get to see this with you. Well, it makes me nervous sometimes, but I, you know, I'm just so glad you showed it to me. Just modeling that is something that's an opportunity to you, not a limitation or a winding down of hope. So against that basis, if a child is floundering a bit with their maths, what kinds of things could we do to, as parents, to help encourage and motivate them a bit more with the math subject specifically? So the received wisdom or the sort of the conventional wisdom at the moment with motivation is that we are motivated by things we're successful at. So if we can create more success, we'll be more, more motivated. And that is sort of broadly true. So from a parent's point of view, there are the two motivations which are intrinsic and extrinsic. So, you know, the you know the small one like when they're when they're small being like if you do this uh, you can have a chocolate bar or whatever and as they get older being like oh can we motivate them with money and stuff like that and we know that that won't necessarily motivate the learning it will just motivate the compliance so extrinsic motivation generally won't work very much for stuff that's mental and difficult to observe it'll only motivate them on the observable behaviors. So it'll motivate them to maybe not go and hang out on the streets with their friends and to be in their room, but it won't necessarily get them any closer to thinking deeply about the work and engaging with difficult things. In terms of what seems to actually work with motivation, and Peps McCree recently wrote a book about this that's really interesting, is that it's still very badly understood, but actually the biggest things that seem to motivate people are a sense of norms and identity. So an idea of in our family, we don't give up on things that are hard. So like I was very lucky, for example, my family had a strong sense of identity as the Queens. And one of the things was, if an academic thing is tough, we don't give up on it. And so it might be with your child that you talk to them about how it's such a testament to their character and a source of pride to them that they keep going with a the subject they find difficult, that even when something makes her feel a bit low, she keeps going. And you could like, link it to all sorts of exciting status-based things around being an adult or being a parent or things that, you know, they're, team, they're doing their GCSEs, they're on the cusp of adulthood and they really want to be adults. So talking to them about how their behaviour there fits in with our family and who we are and creating a deeper sense of belonging that actually yes struggling with this makes me more part of my family and it gives me a sense of belonging and identity and being loved and being valuable but also that it's bringing into a bigger exciting goal like being a real adult who's respected by other adults as well is more motivating so having that sense of norm so that's part of what you're saying about how we talk about maths is really important if they think if mum or dad talks that way about maths, I'm more part of my family if I also reject maths and also don't care about it. So it doesn't have to be that 
your mum or dad is excellent at maths, but their attitude towards maths is the thing that that is important for the child. Obviously, sometimes teenagers are extremely grumpy and hard, and they're trying to be the opposite of what you are. But we have to make sure that it's still like aspirational to be part of the family identity, even if it's we have to do it in gentle and sensitive ways for how they're feeling. So if it's part of the structure of the day is they maybe they do something try and get teenagers up early before school that's only the most motivated ones will do that but it could be the first thing they do when they get in is they do maybe 15 minutes of maths online and they show that to you and that's part of an easy routine there's no decision making we always go on this website let's say it goes on to HD maths we do this or we always do a couple of past questions and show mom or show dad and it's like a routine so having it be there's no decision making going on just to reduce some of the mental stress and the self-discipline stress that, and like the sort of self-discipline exhaustion that comes with that and making it so that they get small extrinsic things whether it's just a little bit of praise or like validation for, for rewarding themselves like oh that's fantastic you've earned a bit of your Netflix time because if they've been struggling then they'll still go and make potentially weak choices like go on social media or whatever but if they have found a way to feel validated about doing enjoyable things afterwards like going on TikTok or whatever through that validation for a parent so that it's easier to make the right choice in the first place and then easier to enjoy other like fun choices afterwards as well those sort of things can help them so they're motivated towards actually enjoying their social media time or their friends time they're motivated towards feeling like they're part of the family they're motivated towards feeling like a real adult how can I tie our talk about maths into that sort of motivation, which is generally true for all teenagers? Also, I think one of the things that struck me when listening to you there was that it's that sense of being part of the family and this is what we do. And for many parents, actually, a lot of this maths will have been long forgotten. There aren't very many people who will calculus or <laughs> these other kinds of things. They just they tend not to come into everyday life. And so is there then an opportunity to ask the child to explain it back to you and teach them. I mean, that that seems to be a fairly virtuous, explain to me because I don't know, but I want to know in the same way you need to know. Definitely. So when I think about students who I've taught who have been students who've not had a natural aptitude for math, by which I mean it's been, you know, every step has been a hard struggle and it's been like a serious achievement for them to get a four or a five. What has made the difference to help them keep going and have some confidence is that their answers make sense to them, by which I don't just mean that they can like plug into a calculator, they're acting like a little maths machine. I mean that they can look at it and they say, it makes sense that the answer to this is three because it makes sense that I'm multiplying these things because. So asking your child to engage in the sense-making side rather than the technical side is where as a, an adult who's important to them and who's able to give them that one-to-one -one attention is really, really valuable because both it shows that that behaviour of sense-making is highly valuable to you and that helps to push that behaviour more in their lessons and the way that they're thinking rather than focusing just on getting the right answer and a failure if they don't the right answer. So both lionises sense-making behaviour but also that is just what will make them better at maths because a lot of the time children are trying to do things in exams like check their answers. They don't know how to check their answers because they have no idea if it makes sense for the answer to be 5,000. Whereas if they've got more sense-making strategies and feel that they're good sense-makers which they're only going to get through conversation and experience and practice. I mean you don't have to be brilliant at maths to be able to sense-make and most adults can do that with that level of maths, that's the sort of thing that gives them confidence. So if they can look at their answer and say, this answer makes sense, that's what also makes them enjoy the experience of answering questions and doing exams as well. Because it doesn't feel like, oh God, it's seven, move on. It's that kind of thing. So what's interesting about that is that we've been hearing quite a lot over the most recent podcast episodes about retrieval practice and the power of testing. And one of the things that occurred to me is that if you don't know why if you've got a question wrong in maths in particular, that's really, really important, isn't it? That you need to be able to go back and understand where you went wrong or maybe even where you went right 
in order to not make the same kind of mistake before. So does retrieval practice play a different role for maths? So there's different types of practice that children can do at home that's still very valuable to them. So one thing I'd broadly, though it depends on the child and how well they're doing, if your child finds maths hard, I actually would advise against too much of trying to do past papers and full questions at home, because what they're probably going to do is encode failure and practice making mistakes, which will both not help them at the technical level, but also not help the motivation in their sense of self. So the loss of underlying skills in maths, obviously having a big map of how all the concepts make sense and fit together is the big goal that we have for the kids. But underlying it, there's lots of explicit knowledge. So at the most simple level, a really big difference between the children who do well or not at maths is how quickly and easily they know stuff like half of seven, which I know sounds like you know, it's a very tedious and low level thing, but actually a child who's trying to do a piece of work and they're going, oh God, I don't want to have to do half of seven. So I'm not sure of that. And I'm going to do some working out and it's going you know, to draw a little bus stop division. That kid's going to hate maths because everything feels hard versus, so when I say facts, obviously there's knowing the cosine rule, which is a bit more long and fiddly, but even can they quickly double things? Can they quickly have things? Can they quickly time things by 10? Those are things that any parent, if your child's struggling, you know, if grade four is what they're pushing for, that's the sort of stuff that actually builds their confidence or getting better times tables and just making it low stakes and making it clear like, oh, this is just for fun. We're going to practice this. We're just going to practice being fast and accurate at it. Also, speed is not everything. Making a child think fast is the same as good is not right, but doing it to you know make get gamified and make it exciting and help them have a sense of their own progress. So lots of like minor facts like that that are part of the web of maths being accessible and all or stressful, as well as formulae and things like that. There's also a lot of implicit knowledge which, as a parent, you can do with them. Like, how did you know you could simplify this fraction? Oh, I could see that seven goes into them both. How did you know you could use Pythagoras? Oh, because I can see it's got a right angle. So those kinds of questions of how did you know you could do it? So especially those questions work when the child's already gotten going. So rather than feeling like, oh God, I don't know what to do. And it's just more questions that stress them out. And stuff that they already have some degree of confidence with or are willing to have a go, getting them to explicitly talk about, well, I know that this is the right thing to do because helps them also have more explicit reasons in their mind that they're able to make sense of things and that they have sensible strategies. It's more complicated what a teacher might do in the classroom, but I'm just thinking about things that especially parents can link to. And then the final thing is with practice is the there'll be complex applied questions that are maybe worth five or six marks for them to draw loads of maths together. But in line that there'll be lots of things that are almost like muscle memory. So I imagine for most people who have reasonable confidence with math, if you gave them an equation, let's say it's a linear equation, by linear I mean ones where you, you balance, so you do the same to both sides, that we almost just sort of like crunch our way through it. And it's almost a bit like driving, you kind of go on autopilot. So there's lots of stuff in maths where you ideally get to the situation that the underlying mechanical skills are a bit like driving in the sense of like oh now i'm just going to solve it and we we know when you get like to a level at university is you know the, the teacher shows something quite complex and they say and then obviously we you know and they just wave their hand and write what the answer is because they take that but it's a bit of a given and so that side of things it's useful for your child to get better at and that's something that they can practice at home because it's easy to check if you're right or wrong and generally those things are not very complicated or weird or wordy it's just like practice solving some simultaneous equations what's important is just to make sure your child doesn't think maths is only doing computation if they can't do the computation they're not going to succeed but maths is so much more than computation so practicing explicit facts like what is sine 30 it's a half implicit facts like how did you know to multiply the base times the height and then the computation and making that fluent and natural and ideally at an autopilot stage 
are all ingredients that just reduce that stress and that fear of failure when they do get to more complex applied questions. And I think it's fine if you're a parent thinking, I've no idea how to help them unpick this really massive six marker vectors question that even teachers find that hard to unpick. So I think as a parent, the likelihood of success at home is quite low. And for the child, their likelihood of success at home is quite low. The ingredients that build that up are stuff that they can successfully do at home and the parents can successfully help them with. That muscle memory idea is really interesting. Looking back, actually, and maybe when my two were a bit younger, as you can see you'd be in that position where you were doing like mental maths of what's, I don't know, even, even simple stuff like six times five. And they'd say, oh, uh, six times five. Um, hang on, what did you say? What was the question? And, and you know that they heard, but because the answer wasn't so immediate, muscle memory, they've started to clam up. They've used delaying tactics. And I think that that, that together with the confidence, if you know that six times five is 30, you've just moved on to the next thing. And so overplaying those, you said before, you, you, weren't, you didn't want to call them basics, but to keep replaying those foundation elements, I guess, become the essential layer, don't they, for the next pieces on. And they also allow the child just to have that little bit of affirmation that like, oh, look at all this stuff I just knew without even having to think. Like, it's such a pleasure to have someone say three times four and your brain just gives you 12. It's just, I mean, imagine your brain just now gave you a 12. It took it took no mental energy. You just know this stuff. And on the one hand, of course, you're not like proud that you know it, but at the same time, it's like, ooh, check out my brain. I just know stuff. And letting your child experience that and building that up. So that's something you can do at home and also acknowledge that they're like, oh, look at all this stuff. Your brain, it takes you no energy. All that, all that mental energy can just go into this tricky graphs question or whatever. It just helps them have that sense that tangible feeling of quote marks getting smarter and making progress even though they feel like basic things to do with your child as parents we've experienced these things before where we'll be going through and oh wow oh so that's the name of henry VIII's wives i never knew that or i'd forgotten that it seems like it's so much easier to marvel at the other subjects whereas maths i don't know i'm not sure why but maths just feels like one of those things where, as we said in the introduction you either do or you don't get but obviously what we've heard is that that's absolutely not the case that while you may have ability, you can still hone that skill and still develop it. And uh, or as parents that we have should still come into play. Mm, definitely. One little thing on motivation that I mentioned, because it either is extremely successful, or extremely unsuccessful with kids, is the fact that they do have to reset their maths if they don't pass. Some children are deeply motivated by that. And obviously don't mention it too often because it's frightening and depressing but it can kind of make them be like oh god fine you know every every night they're having to make that choice will i do another half hour of revision and that idea of that happening they're like fine i'll do it because they just get that kind of the sense of the inescapable inevitability that seems to only work for children who are reasonably good long-term thinkers which i'll see as it's not just children, lots of people aren't long-term thinkers. I mean, everyone who, I mean, every time I eat like lots of sugary things, I definitely know how bad diabetes is. I definitely know I'm making it more likely I'll get it. And I go, and all that happens is I just feel less enjoyment as I eat my chocolate bar rather than it actually changing. So I'm really not one of those long-term people, at least when it comes to like eating a whisper. So for some children who are good at thinking about long-term and who aren't like really extreme future discounters, that will work. But for children who aren't good at it, it all it means is they'll engage in the same behavior, but feel worse about themselves. And it'll potentially damage the relationship between you and them. So making sure they do know it, like it's obviously dreadful if your child doesn't know how much they could be making their life harder if they fail it. And that consequence, that's like an inescapable consequence coming down the road. Only a small proportion of children is that actually useful for keeping them going rather than just making them feel beaten down. Absolutely. And also, you don't want your long term motivation to be distressed 
I don't want to do this, otherwise it's all going to go wrong. And we heard from in previous episode with looking at motivation that actually, as you say, this could work quite well as something that kicks off that spurt of, look, come on, you really don't want to have to tip your maths again when you're in year 12 or doing an apprenticeship or whatever else it is that you're doing. So let's put in some strategies or ways in which we can sort of get you over the line. And even there with the thing we talked about earlier about norms and belonging, you can create a sense of you and your kid versus the unfairness. Like you might mean, I've definitely got real reservations about kids being forced to repeat it and repeat it. I mean, you don't have to be negative about maths, but being like, I just wish that they're more fair. It's not, it's not fair that people have to reset. All right, how are we going to beat this so it doesn't happen to you? So a sense of like, it's us against the exam, it's us against the unfairness. So not necessarily us against maths. You, you might be positive about who your child shows who they are by all their hard work and how much more logical and organized is going to make them and how successful they're going to be in the future and how much it makes them part of the family or whatever. But you can definitely be a team against like, oh, I just wish I could snap my fingers and the examiner could see what an intelligent person you are and how logical you are. And they could just give you that grade four or give you that grade seven. I wish we could do that. Okay, how are we going to actually show them that you deserve this grade? So you can still engage in that sort of like fantasy with your child of like wishing things were quote, fair, I mean, maybe not even necessarily quote marks, or the sense of it's us against this challenge. So you can do all that stuff to help them have a sense of being in a team with you without having to reject the idea of becoming better at maths. So there's lots of other ways you can create that sense of team. At the other end of the spectrum, so we've obviously looked at those children who find it difficult and who are finding it hard to get motivated around doing maths. For those children at the other end who are doing well but actually it's still looking at how can I turn the dial how can I go from my six to a seven seven to an eight or aspire to a nine what are the kinds of things that they should be doing I mean there are I guess in a number of circumstances a lot of parents that really are going to have been left behind at this point as the pupils are working to that level so I mean beyond making sure they've got donuts. What kinds of things should parents be looking out for to help those students at the other end? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned donuts because for a second I thought you were about to say the thing I was thinking of, which is the one thing that has made a really big difference to the kids I've worked with is using Hegarty Math. So, I mean, I'm not on uh, Mr. Hegarty's payroll or anything saying this. Uh, <laughs> it's just one that I do, I have found, at least from my experience as a teacher, and I know some of the parents at my last school just talked about it being really transformational so it's a it's an online program there are similar ones but the, one of the things that Hegarty Maths has is it breaks all of the maths that the kid can do into about I think it's like roughly like 900 videos with like questions that they do and it's adaptive and everything but all of it comes up on a little donut on their homepage so that the parent can see how much progress it's a bit like a pie chart but it's made to look like a donut so it's more compelling so that kids can see like that they're making their way through all the topics and parents can talk about how much progress they've made and the kid can set themselves at those topics targets of making their progress and it also just allows them to be accountable because for us that pupils who struggled obviously found it hard even to do work at home that independent work that's supported with videos and everything but for the children who are kind of over that first threshold of finding maths really really difficult you know so maths was reasonably accessible to them that sort of independent work of watching a video I mean that's revision doing questions and just ticking their way through that donut was both motivating to have that progress be very visible but also motivating for the parent to be able to see that progress being visible as well so your child doing a little bit really frequently is important in terms of stuff that a parent could suggest to their child that's actually useful for maths that kind of goes beyond the foundational stuff so if your child's kind of get aiming for a self in their class is strategies that work at home if you're doing stuff with your kids is if they are doing questions is to identify what facts did you need to do this so it could be 
I needed the cosine rule or I needed to realize to use the cosine rule. So that's that's a piece of implicit knowledge they could write on one side of a flashcard. How when do you need to use the cosine rule on the back? Or when can I use the cosine rule to find an angle? On the back, I can use the cosine rule for an angle if I've got three sides. When can use the cosine rule to find a missing side on the back? I can use it only if I've got ASA or you know, in a, you know angle side angle. So whichever one makes sense or a matter of a little diagram. So if your child's doing better with maths, is getting them to start thinking at a higher level of what were all the decisions and implicit things I needed to know in order to succeed with this question. So rather than first I had to add 15, then I had to divide by three with stuff that's like so specific to the question and not generalized, is encouraging your child to think about what the general things you needed to like realize or clock in this question or oh, I needed to realize that I should have written it as a fraction so they might have something like one side of the card says how do you write a proportion on the back I write it as a fraction or a percentage so lots of the things are like oh I didn't really have to do that so getting them to notice more of that slightly meta stuff or implicit stuff that that becomes part of their flashcard pile so not just like obvious facts like what is cos 45 but also things like you know the sort of examples i've been giving how did you know kind of questions so that's the sort of thing that can really enhance what they're doing with flashcards and retrieval which is obviously easy to do at home and easy for a parent to get involved with or encourage or praise and see is actually going on one thing as well if you want to work with your child is if they're struggling with something, is asking them to find questions that are superficially similar to talk through what makes them different. So an example would be if you've got two right angle triangles, one might be a trigonometry question, one might be a Pythagoras question, one might be an area question. So how, how can we tell what's similar about these questions? How did you know to use base times height over two? How did you know to use a squared plus b squared equals c squared? How did you know to use sine x over whatever? That kind of, or sine theta equals whatever. So that's the sort of thing that being done individually, that sense making and telling things apart is really valuable to kids who are trying to get a bit further along. One thing that's really big is if you are asking your child to talk about stuff with you, is being really strict with them. And I say strict, I don't mean as in cold, as in I mean pushing for a high standard around how they talk about the maths. So you say, okay, talk me through this question. How did you know what to do? This is, you know, you've been really supportive. They'll tend to speak in real specifics and they'll tend to use pronouns a lot. And what's happening is they're masculine. They don't really know what's going on. So they'll say, oh, I multiplied these things and then, I, and then I divided it. And it's like, what did you multiply? Oh, I multiplied three and four. Why did you pick three and four? Oh, I picked three because it's the base and I picked four because it's, it's the height. Which height is it? The perpendicular height. So getting your child to go from, I multiplied them and then I halved it to, I wanted to get the area, so I multiplied the base by the, by the perpendicular height. Then I have to because it's a triangle. So getting them to move away from the specifics of one question, because they're never going to get that question ever again. What they're going to get is the general form of that piece of maths and that concept again. So getting a child to speak, almost asking them to give answers, like a rule of thumb could be don't use any numbers when you tell me how to do it. So they have to speak about the parts rather than the numbers. I mean, obviously there'll be certain questions where, of course, the numbers make sense. But in general, if they're maybe talking about a sequence, instead of saying, oh, I added six every time, I look for the common difference and I use that to find the next term is something that's a generalized true thing that they can apply to multiple new contexts whereas I added six every time it's probably only going to be true once so getting a child to speak in generalities but also to be specific and avoid any pronouns will make a really big difference in what they're explaining to you and how they knew to do what they were doing will make a big difference one similar thing you see is if you are looking at past papers or they're marking their work 
it's really common when kids annotate their work to annotate it just with the correct working out. What they should be pushing themselves to annotate for is the correct thinking. There are ways to think wrong in maths, but there are lots of ways to think correctly in maths. But getting a child to annotate, I did this because. So rather than, you know, they might annotate divide six on the page. That's useless. That what they should annotate is something like multiply both sides by the denominator to get X on its own or whatever. So annotating strategy rather than annotating steps is really important as a thing to. So it might be something you do with them of what did you do? Why did you do it? Okay, write down why you did it. Don't write down what you did. That was obvious. Write down why you did it. That's a really mathematical smart thing. Fantastic. That kind of side of things makes a big difference. And one other is if you are feeling really brave and want to help your kid with worded questions, which are like, even math teachers find making that down with kids really, really tricky. So don't, if you're a parent, don't feel like you have to tackle worded questions with your kids because they are the, fi the, fi the final hurdle. But if you are, two things that can really help them is to actually draw a little baby diagram of it. So let's say it's one of those questions where Anna is six years older than Ben. Ben's age is half of Cara's age. It's actually just drawing even a little picture. Okay, let's draw Anna. Is Ben older or younger? Okay, Ben's a bit younger. Let's, you know, let's see. He's older. Let's draw him a little bit bigger and you label him B. Cara's half his age. Okay, let's draw her half the size. And so it's just like little stick people. And then you write all the relationships. You might go from your stick row for Anna to Ben, a little arrow saying plus six. Then your stick man to this little stick girl for Kari and little arrow saying divide by two. So just they can escape from the language as fast as possible into a picture and then they can turn that picture into some algebra or into a calculation. So helping your child to just make really simple little drawings. So a lot of the worded questions, especially for foundations, this is not thinking as much actually about higher, but for kids who are kind of struggling around the four or five mark, is they're kind of folksy little contacts like money being shared in a company and, you know, maybe between 10 people say, all right, let's, let's draw 10 little boxes for the people's money to go in just to help them escape from the frighteningness of wordy questions into a little context or a little picture context that allows them to actually imagine the relationships better because they find it easy to imagine relationships with pictures, but they really simple, simplify pictures. They really struggle to imagine relationships when it's still in words. So that kind of thing can really help them as well. And then the final thing with worded questions, and this is the final step, is a lot of the time it's the final line kind of tells you what to do and it's almost like working backwards. So if the question says, identify what proportion of this shape is shaded, thinking, okay, if I need to figure out what's shaded, shaded tells me I need to find lengths or areas. Okay, I need to find area. So backwards, I need to find some area. I need to find the area of the whole thing. I need the shaded thing. Okay, my final answer is going to be shaded area over total area. And then you're working back. Okay, how can I find the total area? I need the area of the square. How will I find the shaded area? I need the area of the triangle. Okay, now I can write above it. Area of triangle over area of square. Okay, to get the area of the triangle, what am I going to need? The base and the height. Okay, can I, so you're just working backwards from the final thing it's asked for and trying to write that down in a super generalized way and generalizing backwards the things you need to find. And that almost tells you how to begin. Like, okay, so I need the area of the triangle. So I need base and height. Can we find those? Oh, we can find those. Great. Now we can start. So it also means that when the child begins a question, they've got a map that they can follow. Learning how to work backwards does take them a little while doing it. A skilled teacher can show them how to do it and it's hard to unpick. But once they've learned to work backwards, they're so excited to then start because they've got like a little roadmap telling them what to do at every stage. And they kind of have this sense of inevitability of getting towards the answer. So those are my tips <laughs> if you're trying to push them for that. Fantastic level of tips there and covering, I think, the full spectrum as well. And what I really like about the feeling of them is that by encouraging your child to, to work through them, but why did you do that? It doesn't have to be accusatory. It doesn't even have to be that they've got something wrong. It's about, actually, as a parent, tell me how, because I don't know. <laughs> it's been too long since I had to find the shaded area of a circle that's got a triangle in it. So I don't understand 
why did this happen? How did you get to here? And by repeating and going through generalized steps, as you say, it sounds like the, the students themselves are helping to embed these practices and techniques. It takes for a while to develop it. I forgot one thing that does help if your kids do a worded question, because you'll see kids write absolutely mad answers because they, you know, the question might be, how long is it going to take or how far does, you know, Anna have to walk to get to Ben's house? And because they get so lost, they write down, you know, they, they start working out, they're not thinking and they write like 8,000 miles as their answer, because of course they're just, they're kind of lost all sense of the question. So just like panic, multiply, numberish number, and they don't know what's going on. So another tip that can help your kid get started that you can do with them all the time for stuff is tell me an answer that's definitely too small tell me an answer that's definitely too big because that most children are willing to like have a guess it was definitely too small an answer because it's kind of funny and you can like out you can out guess each other and what's a crazy small answer and you can out guess each other and what's a crazy big answer or no one would walk 500 miles to their friend's house so if they've set themselves some parameters that also gives them a way to check their answer so if they get 8,000 they're like hmm but that check is coming from a place of their own intelligence rather than a place of external judgment as we're approaching GCSE now so many students will still be looking at doing the exams in June time, obviously, depending on what happens in the outside world. But we're still tracking there. So I think we still need to we obviously need to still plan around there being in that case. For um, those pupils in year 11 who might be struggling, who might be thinking, oh, I'm not sure if there's enough time to turn this around or to get my seven or eight. Is there still plenty of time for them to turn the dial in whatever grades they're looking for? I'd say in general, the higher the grades are on the moment, so if they're quote marks on a five or on a six, obviously any one mark is just a snapshot. Generally, the, the higher the grade they're on, probably the more progress they can make as long as they do the work. We did have kids at my last school who had gotten fives or sixes, their marks in September. So speaking about September, who got eights or nines in June, those kids worked very, very hard and they're being taught well and they're in a great school with a great culture. So don't I mean so there are also multiple factors at play. By and large, on average, kids tend to change by one grade from you know start of year eleven to end of year eleven or you know first walks to the end of the year. But there are also loads of outliers both ways. So it's definitely if you're thinking I need a seven, so I want to do XYZ course at this college and I'm currently only on a four or five, that's still a good enough position to get there. So it's not unrealistic but it will only be realistic if it also comes with the commitment of working really hard and not just like trying to think oh my revision book is under my pillow so I'm going to learn it by osmosis so if they really want it they can definitely do it and it's completely realistic but it has to be just accompanied by realism about the work it would take around practicing and everything like that. Thank you so much Danny for joining me today. There was certainly plenty of food for thought in, in everything that you talked about. Now, it's entirely normal for students to find some subjects more challenging than others. For whatever reason, we can feel more naturally able to do, for example, maths over English. What's important as a parent is that we don't accidentally reinforce the view that limits our children's aspirations to do well across the board. And when it comes to maths, it can be very easy to fall into these traps. It's entirely normal for students to find some subjects more challenging than others. For whatever reason, we can feel more naturally able to do, for example, English over maths. What's important as parents is that we don't accidentally reinforce a view that limits our children's aspirations to do well across the board. And when it comes to maths especially, it can be very easy to fall into those traps. You're just like me, I was never any good at this, is a well-intentioned comfort but far from encouraging grit and determination, it creates the idea that the student has reached a genetic ceiling. 
or as Danny explained, that it's part of the family identity. Thinking about it now, I do this quite a bit. I'm no good at remembering birthdays, or it's a family trait to leave things until the 11th hour. It's not hard to see how we could turn this into something more inspiring while also being supportive. It doesn't come naturally to me, but I'm always up for having another go. Or perhaps Danny's more rallying cry, we McGirls don't give up easily, could become my new mantra. The point, of course, is not to dismiss the frustration, but motivate them by making it okay to keep trying. Children will often look to us for guidance, even if it is sometimes well hidden behind a mask of grunts and the backlit glow of their mobile phones. And we can lead by example here. There's a dual benefit to encouraging our young people to talk to us about the maths that they're doing. There's a high chance that we won't remember, and so we can show that it's okay to be vulnerable in that way. But Danny explained too that getting them to talk to us about the broad ideas behind what they're doing will help them to embed the processes and techniques in their own mind, making sense of the answers, as Danny called it. Before now, I'd assumed that maths revision was a case of keep trying new questions and using class time to make sense of where something might have gone wrong. But from what Danny said, that's clearly not the case. Danny gave us a few fantastic examples of how we as parents can support. The first thing for me is the importance of embedding the foundations. Firing off times tables, encouraging more and more mental maths are all really easy, simple things that we can do. I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for Emily asking Siri or Alexa what 8 times 7 is in the future. And it's not that in real life, if you like, she couldn't use a calculator or her phone, but just picture how much easier the tests are going to become if these fundamentals just flow easily. That, as Danny mentioned, can give the students a bit of a confidence boost, which is really important while doing their exams in those exam conditions. I absolutely love Danny's idea of the flashcards too. As a recent convert to retrieval practice, having talked to a number of our amazing guests, it's great to see how it could be applied to maths. A technique or a situation on one side of the card and the explanation or the formula on the other. A great way to help cement recall in these really important aspects. I'm also really encouraged to hear that there's still everything to play for. Maths isn't a fixed ability. And I guess you could say that, that Danny's studying tips all add up, if you'll forgive the pun. So whether currently your child feels that a pass is gonna be a stretch, or whether they're pushing themselves for those top grades, with practice and a positive attitude, and that's theirs and ours, it's possible to turn the dial up a notch and for them to achieve the result that they could be really proud of. Thank you for listening. I hope, like me, you found this episode really interesting and eye-opening. If you did, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating? It helps us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people as they approach GCSEs. Of course, I'd encourage you, as always, to share the link to this and the other episodes with friends on social media too. Always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.